let's read this. Colossians 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, and you may stand, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heriopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, uh, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is God's word for us this morning. While you're in Colossians, uh, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. So a few pages or a few swipes back uh, to the beginning of this letter. Uh, we started this back in September. Remember September? It was warm. It's beautiful around here. Uh, I remember September as the last month I got any good sleep before my son was born. Uh, so back in September, we started this letter, and we read in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, remember, Paul, the apostle, uh, he, uh, his life was transformed by Jesus. Uh, he became a church planter. He spread all throughout the region, telling people about Jesus, starting communities just like ours, uh, to say this is who Jesus is and this is how we follow him. Uh, and he wrote this letter to a small church in Colossae of first-generation followers of Jesus, uh, helping them figure out how do I follow Jesus and how do we follow Jesus together in the midst of our differences and our disagreements. Uh, and, and the kind of the thesis of Paul's letter, the main point of Paul's letter is that Jesus is over everything. That he is not something that you add to what you're already doing, but he requires us to rethink everything about our lives, about our community, about what it looks like to live life uh, in his way. And he began that letter in Colossians chapter 1 with a thanksgiving uh, and a prayer. And this was the prayer that he prayed in, in uh, beginning verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So he begins with this praise of the celebration that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has come to them. And he gives them this picture that uh, the way of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is this active, ongoing, dynamic thing that is spreading throughout all corners of the known world. 
that every corner of the known world is hearing about Jesus and every, uh, every tribe and tongue and people group is beginning to discover who Jesus is and they are following him and he is excited about that. Because if Jesus is supposed to be over everything, then every person in every community in every neighborhood is going to find themselves caught up in this thing that Jesus is doing in the world. He gives them this picture that this mission is active and ongoing and exciting and he is celebrating it. But the reality is, if you look at our world, and if you look at maybe even your life from this past year, it might not feel like or seem like Jesus is over it. I mean, like, like this was a hard year for like, our world. There's a lot of war and conflict going on. Maybe it was a hard year for you. And you like, maybe you look back at who you were in January and February and say, I was a better follower of Jesus then than I am now. I'm kind of blowing it right now. Or maybe you think about like your block and your neighbors and you know the things that they're going through and you say, what would it look like? Why, why does it seem like Jesus isn't over that scenario or that home or that community? So the reality is that there is a, a gap still between Jesus being over everything in our world and the reality of that experience in the lives around us. That there is still work to be done. There's still a mission that this, when Paul described this in, in chapter 1, he said this is actively growing. It is actively moving. It is on the move, and that is still taking place today. There are still places in which the name of Jesus has yet to be heard. There are still lives and communities in which Jesus is not yet over everything, and we are invited to participate in what he is doing in our world still to this day. Advent and Christmas, as we walk through it the past couple weeks, is anticipating not just Jesus' birth, but his second coming, his arrival, when his kingdom will come in all of its fullness and everything that he talked about will be here. All the righteousness and justice and peace and, and community that, that Jesus wants will be here in our world. And so we're called to be people who are anticipating that and participating in what Jesus wants to do anticipating what he is going to do when his kingdom comes and working towards that end today. And in the closing remarks of this letter, Paul kind of ties the whole thread back together. This is what uh, my, uh, one of my uh, preaching professors called bookending, where you start with something and then you talk about some things and you come back to the end and you tie it all together in a nice neat bow, uh, which is hard to do sometimes. But Paul does it really well because he comes back to the end of this and he offers a few kind of thoughts that seem a little bit jumbled, like kind of like do this and do this and here's prayer and then here's this. But he's really kind of coming back to this reality that he's showed them who Jesus is and what Jesus did for them and what does it look like for them to live a life in Jesus. But now that's not the end of that life. Right? The end goal of following Jesus and being part of his community is not just that I have, I have all Jesus in my life and I feel really good but that it should go from you to then you pass the baton to someone else. You then share with someone else the things that you have discovered about Jesus. Because the gospel is going forward. There's a mission. There's a dynamic to it. And so it's still yet to go. And as you find yourself following Jesus, you're now invited into that too. And so now you have a role to play in this. And so in these verses, Paul gives us three things that you and I can do to participate in the mission going forward. Three things that you and I can do in our everyday lives to participate in the mission of Jesus going forward in your home, in your community, and in the world at large. Right? Three things. So we're just going to walk through these this morning. The first is prayer. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So to share Jesus with someone or to participate in the mission going forward, notice Paul starts not with marketing or with an influence campaign, which is how our world would start. We'd start with Facebook ads and Instagram ads and targeted things on TikTok and all the things. We'd start with marketing and say, how do we best communicate this strategy to the world around us to get us to buy into what we're doing? That's not where Paul starts. Paul starts with prayer. He starts with seeking God's will and seeking God's power. Because if the gospel is going forward, it's something that God wants to do. And so we seek his will and his plan and his purpose in it. We start with prayer, with seeking out what he wants to do. Now, notice how Paul describes this prayer. What does this prayer actually look like? The first thing he describes it as steadfast, or your translation might say devoted. Be devoted in prayer. The idea of this is that is a regular habit or practice in your life. That prayer is a practice that followers of Jesus put into practice in our everyday lives. It is a continual thing, a regular thing, a habit. Right? Uh, like when, when Paul would say other places like, uh, like pray without ceasing, right? he's not necessarily communicating that you just quit everything and go like pray off in the woods and shirk all your responsibilities. He means like the regular rhythm and habit of your life should be prayer. That prayer should be this habit and this practice in your life. The first thing you get up or, or over your lunch break or as you're driving home from work or as you're taking your kids to school, that you are engaging in this regular habit of prayer. Sometimes I think we treat prayer like a lottery ticket, right? Where you're like, I'm, I'm going to say these things, I'm going to guess these words, and then, and then maybe hopefully on the other end there'll be a payout where God's going to do something. Like, that's not where, where Paul starts. He says God is doing something. And so when I make a regular devoted practice of prayer, I am aligning my attention and my heart and my life with what God is already doing. And so being devoted in prayer is to say, what's my habit of prayer? Right? What is the thing, what is the regular rhythm in which I'm going to seek God's will in my life so that I can be in alignment with this kingdom? So the second word that he uses, though, is being watchful in it. So notice that this prayer is not a closing my eyes and plugging my ears to the needs of the world. Prayer is not an excuse to ignore the needs of your neighbor or to say, well, well I don't need to, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to be devoted to my life with Jesus. No, prayer is an active, eyes-open kind of thing. That as we seek God's will and seek his kingdom and his mission going forward, it should lead us to a greater awareness of what God is doing and where my neighbors have needs. Or where there might be an opportunity for me to, to pursue someone or to grow in relationship with someone. This is a prayer that leads to alertness, that leads to awakeness. This is the same word that Jesus used for his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Like, watch with me. Be alert. Recognize that God's kingdom is coming and get in alignment with it. The third word is then thankful. This prayer is thankful. This is a prayer that believes and anticipates that God's going to do it. This is a prayer of believing. A lot of times our thankful prayers are prayers of what God did in the past. God, thank you for how you came through for me this past week. Thanks for how you provided for me uh, last year. A lot of times our thankfulness is, is in response to what God did for us in the past. That's not the language of Paul's thankfulness here. This is a thankfulness that's oriented towards the future. 
that understands and believes that God's kingdom is coming and that that has already been decided. And so I am thankful, not because of what God has done in the past, but because I believe and anticipate that he's going to do something greater this year. He's going to do something great in my community or in my block because his kingdom is coming and that is not up for debate. That is happening. And so I believe and I am thankful that God's going to do it as I pray. And here's why that's so important. Our circumstances, your circumstances, do not determine whether the mission succeeds or fails. Your circumstances do not determine whether the mission succeeds or fails. And so therefore, your circumstances do not determine whether or not you participate in the mission. Notice where Paul is. Look at verse 3. He says, At the same time, pray for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So Paul is in prison. He is in chains. He does not have the freedom to go about what he wants to do. And yet that does not keep him from believing that God can use him right then and there to share Jesus with people. And so your circumstances do not dictate or determine whether or not God could use you in the mission. So it doesn't matter if you think you're too young to share Jesus with people or you think you're too old to share Jesus with people. It doesn't matter if you think, well, I don't know enough about who Jesus is yet to share him or, or my life is too hard right now to share Jesus with him. Paul is in prison. He says, I can share Jesus here and he's going to open a door. He doesn't pray for an open door of his prison cell. He prays for an open door to share the gospel, to share Jesus with people. The reality is sometimes when you're going through the hard things in life, like that is the space in which Jesus is going to use your life to demonstrate the gospel. Sometimes we think, man, i got to have my life together before I can share Jesus. No, sometimes when your life is falling apart and you're holding on to Jesus, that is the greatest witness of the power of Jesus. And yet so often we're like, well, my life isn't perfect yet. When is your life ever going to be perfect? Or I don't have enough time. When are you ever going to have enough time? I never talk to someone who's like, you know, I have enough time. Like, your circumstances are not the determining factor of whether or not you participate in the mission of Jesus. It is your awareness and your openness to be used by him. And so whether you're young or old, whether you're new to Jesus or you've been following him for generations, right, it does not determine whether or not you're qualified or invited to participate in the mission of Jesus. And so we be prayerful. We are prayerful asking God to do what he wants to do. The second way that we participate in this is through presence. Look at verse 4. It says, That I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Our presence in the lives of people demonstrates who Jesus is. When Paul says that I might make it clear, he uses this word, make it manifest or reveal it. He says that his life will reveal or make manifest what he calls the mystery of Christ. He's used this phrase a couple times throughout the letter, and it's meant a couple of different things. In chapter 1, he said the mystery of Christ is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In other words, that your life is being transformed by the presence and the power of Jesus. In chapter 2, he described this mystery as Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying that his life is going to demonstrate or be a revelation of the power of the gospel of Jesus. 
And so he's saying, like, look, I want my life to show who Jesus is. So that when people see how he's going through life in prison, when people see his, his hope and his, his courage in the midst of that, like, it's a revelation or a demonstration of the power of Jesus. And so our presence can show who Jesus is. And that's why in verse 5 he says, conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders. Now notice Paul assumes that as you follow Jesus, it will lead you towards people who don't know Jesus. Right? The trajectory of following Jesus, being a disciple or a student of his life, is that you will move more towards people who don't know Jesus yet, not less. Oftentimes in our life, if we're honest, that's how it goes the opposite way. I begin to follow Jesus, and before long, my whole community, my whole schedule is filled with people who follow Jesus. But Paul says the trajectory of your life following Jesus will lead you towards people who don't know him yet, not away from them. And the word he uses here for conduct yourselves uh, is the same word that he used in chapter 2 when he said, uh, continue to walk in Jesus, or to walk in him, or to conduct your life with him. That it has this idea that the everyday stuff of your life is lived in and around outsiders. So they see your life. They see the, the transformation that's happening. They see the distinct way in which you live. And so the way of Jesus leads us towards outsiders, not to just disengage from the world, but to seek the world and to walk in the world differently as people who have a new identity in Jesus. And then he says this, making the best use of the time. Uh, this idea, he, the, the word time that he uses here, uh, there's two words for time in the Greek language. Uh, there is chronos and there is kairos. Chronos is where we get chron chronological, uh, which is like chronological times, like seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks. Chronological time is the time of my schedule. Right? I, I put it on the calendar for tomorrow at 2, I'm going to do it. I put it on the calendar for next week on, at 5 p.m., and I'm going to do it. That's chronological time, and that is how most of us live our lives. Very scheduled. Uh, I, I'm a, a calendar kind of addict. I have to put it on my calendar. It doesn't happen. Right? Uh, that's how most of us live our lives today. And it allows us to control things, to predict things, to make sure I have the time for things that I want. That's one way to think about time. But the word that Paul uses here is not chronos, but kairos. And kairos is breaking in time. It is interruption time. It is something is happening right now. I did not anticipate that, and so I need to respond to it now. This is the word that Jesus used when he says, the kingdom has come, the time is fulfilled. Something is happening right here and right now. And so the reality is, that many of the open doors that God is going to bring, into you, bring to you to share Jesus with people, they're going to look like interruptions. And that's really hard for some of us. Like most of the opportunities that I have to, to bless my neighbors or to share Jesus with them, it's oftentimes when I am functioning in chronological time and I'm saying, I have to be somewhere right now. I'm running late. It's almost always when I'm stressed and I'm preoccupied with something. And then, boom, there's an opportunity. And I have to decide, am I going to continue to function in chronological time or am I going to embrace the kairos that God is sending to me, the opportunity that he is sending to me? Because chronological time is like, okay, how long is this conversation going to go? 
Like if, if my neighbor is outside, right, I can choose, okay, I've got 10 minutes to get to the grocery store. I can choose to get in my car and continue operating chronological time, or I can enter Kairos time by talking to my neighbor, and I don't know when that's going to end. And the problem is so many of us, we are addicted to Kronos time and we are missing opportunities to engage with our neighbors because it's inconvenient or because it doesn't fit in my schedule or how I function in time. But Paul says, make the best use of the time. The language that he uses there, some translations would say redeeming the time, that there is an opportunity in this moment to step into this. I think the best picture of this is end-of-the-year clearance sales. Right? Last year, my wife and I, we went to Hobby Lobby on December 29th, and it looked like a bomb had gone off. Like, we were in the, the holiday aisle, the Christmas aisle, right? And, like, it's like we, we were trying to find two matching candles, and we could not find two matching candles. There's, like, a candle like this and a candle. Like, you just, it was like people were just grabbing everything up. That's Paul's language here. Grab the opportunity. Seek it out. Redeem it. Get to it right now. Because this is the opportunity that God has brought to you. You see, if we are prayerful and watchful, asking for God to move and to open doors, what if he actually does? What if he actually does open that opportunity with your neighbor, but you're too busy for it? What if he actually does bring that opportunity to care for someone, but you're too preoccupied with your agenda? You see, this is how God works. It's his spirit will lead us, but we have to say yes to walk through that door, to step out of Kronos time and into Kairos time. And so our presence in this matters. But then the last way that we participate in this is through conversation. Look at verse 6. It says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He assumes that you will be talking about Jesus with people, right? Like sharing Jesus with people does require us to engage in conversation, to speak, to invite people in. And when he says, let your speech always be gracious, he's not talking about speech like, okay, now's my time to make a 15-minute presentation about Jesus. He means let your conversation, your communication, your words be gracious, that word that he used for gracious is the word for grace, which is what describes how God acted towards us in Jesus. That God made space for us, that he met us in our need and our brokenness and our struggle, and he offered us forgiveness and his presence and his understanding so that he could bring us into his family. That's how our words should be with people. That's how our conversation should be with people, is marked by Jesus and his way and how he lived his life. And so when that opportunity arises, right, when that Kairos moment comes to you, uh, I, if, if you're like me, right, my heart starts beating a little bit, right, I get super nervous, and then I, I start having a conversation, and before long, like, words are just spewing out of my mouth, and I'm speaking more because I'm nervous and anxious, right? Paul is saying, look, the opportunity, the moment, right, when you come into it, like, one, you don't have to be driven by fear, right? just have a conversation with people. And a conversation involves a back and forth, right? I think that's why Paul describes this conversation as seasoned with salt. I had some really salty bacon yesterday, uh, which was delicious, by the way. But man, I was thirsty afterwards. 
Paul's language of seasoned with salt is a common picture in that day. And, and the idea is that it's possible to have too much salt, just like it's possible to have too little salt. And, and in any conversation which you're communicating with someone about who Jesus is, it's possible that you can say too much, and it's also possible that you can say too little. Right? You can say too much where you're, you're filling all the air. You're not allowing any kind of input from them or any kind of understanding from them about what they're thinking about, about what their life is about. And it's just you kind of filling the air with a bunch of salt. And they can't process that. They can't take that in. On the other hand, there can be too little salt. Uh, like if you ever had mashed potatoes with no salt, it is gross. It's just like mush. Right? You need salt. It, it brings out the flavor. Right? That's the idea of Paul's language here, is that our conversation with people should be enticing to them. It should be interesting to them. And it should be this balance of I'm, I'm communicating to them the things of Jesus, but I'm also listening to them so that I can make sure that they can process this. That this is meeting them in their questions and their concerns. And so, like, this season with salt means that, that I, I, I'm being winsome, which means I'm communicating in an, in an understanding way, in a way that you can, in language that you can understand, answering the questions that you might have. Because Paul assumes, if you look in the last of this phrase, he says, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. Right? So there is a confidence that we should have and a conviction that we should have in conversation with people. But notice, how do we know how to answer people? We know how to answer people as we listen to people. Right? Like, like he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer. How, how do we know how we ought to answer this person? As our speech is gracious and seasoned with salt. As we listen to people and share with them, and then we actually listen. Like sometimes I think we're answering questions that people aren't asking. Right? Because we haven't actually taken the time. We, we, like, we hear and we think that we understand what they're saying, but really what's underneath the surface are deeper, harder, more painful questions maybe. And so we're talking up here, but what they're really wondering about is down here. And so as we take time to listen as much as we speak, what Paul is saying is people will tell you what they want to hear. They will tell you the questions that they're asking. And oftentimes the questions that they're presenting are not the actual question. The actual question is beneath the surface. And the only way you can get there is as you listen and as you ask good questions and as you share with conviction and clarity who Jesus is. Right? This is not about kind of watering down Jesus so that it's palatable for people. Paul has been very clear about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and, and what it looks like to follow him. And what people need is not a watered down Jesus, but a clear Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he did. This is why he matters. And this is why he matters in your life. But we will only understand how to communicate that effectively to people as we're in conversation where we're listening and sharing with conviction who Jesus is. One theologian uh, put it this way. He says, Paul, in this text, is calling on Christians to speak with their unbelieving neighbors and friends with gracious, warm, and winsome words, all with the purpose of being able to answer unbelievers. By putting it this way, Paul assumes that unbelievers will be raising questions about the faith of the Colossian Christians, questions that may be neutral or even hostile. An appropriate Christian response will, of course, communicate the content of the gospel, but it will also be done in a manner that will make the gospel attractive. 
Paul imagines the church expected to hold its own in the social setting of the marketplace and the meal table and to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and its speech. That is what we're called to do. And you see, I think this is really important for then the next chunk of verses. Because oftentimes when you read the New Testament, you get to the end and you're like, okay, that's, there's a whole bunch of names. Right. What am I supposed to do with that? Right? Clearly, Archippus, for all of human history, is supposed to fulfill some ministry. What do I do with that? If you read through these lists of names, what you'll find is different backgrounds, different experiences. You'll find wealthy people and people who have nothing. You'll find people who are in the, the social elite and people who are considered social pariahs. And when Paul writes to this church, he writes to them because all of them have been found by Jesus as someone shared Jesus with them. And so, so the way that this works, the way that the mission goes forward, how do, we, how do we begin to see a community that is rooted in this kind of life together where, where we come from different backgrounds and experiences and, and, and privilege and, and all these things that, that would often separate us in the world around us? How is it that we come together? Is because someone shared Jesus with you. And now you have the opportunity to share Jesus with someone. Right? Like, if I share Jesus with people, like, chances are I'm going to be most effective at sharing Jesus with people who are like me. And so if I'm, only the, if I'm the only one who's sharing Jesus, I'm going to end up with a bunch of, like, mid-30s, like, white people who like coffee too much, which I know is a lot of people. But, but, but Paul's point, and I think the picture that we get here is that the church is not supposed to be one sliver of society, or one subsection or one subculture, but that as the church comes together and as the mission of Jesus goes forward, each one of us, as that comes to us and we know who Jesus is, if we are faithful to the mission of sharing Jesus with someone else, we're going to find a community of folks, a church of folks that's made up of people from a whole bunch of different backgrounds, a whole bunch of different experiences. I was talking to a friend recently and I was kind of just thinking like, what does it look like to be a neighbor of the church? Which we're going to talk about in January. What does it look like to be a neighbor of the church? Uh, to actually reflect our neighborhood. And, and he said this, he said the best way to become a neighborhood church is to just love your neighbor. Like, to actually reach your neighbor because each one of us is positioned in a unique place around relationships that I don't have access to. And that many of us don't have access to. But as we each understand that this mission has come to us and we are now invited to share Jesus with people, each one of us can reach a group of people that some of us could never reach. But the end of that is that we would see a church in which all of these different names from all these different experiences and backgrounds are following Jesus. And the world's going to look into that and say, what in the world is happening? How is it that Onesimus, a runaway slave, and Aristarchus, whose, names, whose name means best ruler, which means he probably came from the political establishment, how is it that they are both in the church? How is it that Mark, who ran away from Paul and the mission a couple of years ago, is now welcomed back in? How is it that Nympha is this wealthy, home-owning woman in Laodicea? How is it that she's welcoming a community in which Paul, a prisoner, would be allowed to speak? Man, as the church gets this, the church starts to not make a whole lot of sense to people. Which is why it's so important then that we say, you know what holds us together? 
said, Jesus is over everything. And so you come into our community, and whatever the label is that the, community, the, the world around you has placed on you, whatever your background and your history, your experience, your past failures, Jesus is over everything. And so let's come on in, let's follow him together. So the reality is if Paul was writing this to our church, your name would be on that list. You would be listed as part of this community. And the question is, whose names are you going to add to that list? Who in your life and in your sphere of influence needs to hear about Jesus? So that their name could be added to this list, so that they could come into the family of Jesus, and then they could have a role in the mission of seeing Jesus over everything. That's the task that's before us, church. And that's why Paul ends here, his letter to the Colossians here, because this is how the church moves forward. And that's our task together. We pray for us. Guys, we were gathered this morning. Each one of us at one point or another in our lives had someone speak to us, had someone praying for us, had someone present in our lives showing us the way of Jesus. God, maybe there's someone here this morning and, and, and they're here and they're looking around in this room and they, they realize that they're not, they're, their name is not on that list. They have not found Jesus. Would you bring them in this morning? God, there are people in each of our spheres of influence that you have brought around to us and you're bringing a Kairos moment where we can say yes to an open door. Would you move us towards them today, this week, this year, that we might participate in the mission going forward, that more people would know who you are, so you would truly be over everything. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.